So, we have the opportunity today uh, to continue our study of the church in Ephesus. Um, So Paul spent roughly three years there in the city of Ephesus building the church uh, during his third missionary journey. That's recorded in in Acts 19-ish. And he spent that time there before he was imprisoned in Rome. While he was uh, under house arrest there in Rome, he wrote the letter of Ephesians, which we finished up a couple of weeks ago. Um, And after that, the historical record uh, in the book of Acts ends. And so we have to kind of put little pieces together. And it looks like he was most likely released from his imprisonment in Rome. And uh, he went right back out on the missionary circuit, uh, paid another visit to uh, Ephesus, most likely. And he left behind a young man named Timothy there to lead and teach the church. Now, Timothy was from another nearby city, uh, and he had been converted by Paul, and he had been traveling with him on his missionary journeys for roughly 10 or 15 years at this point. Now, Timothy was a relatively young man. He was somewhere between 30 and 40 years old. Uh, And so Paul wrote 1 and 2 Timothy uh, just a few years after he wrote the book of Ephesians to help Timothy and to help the church there in Ephesus better understand how it was that a church was supposed to work, uh, and also to encourage Timothy to be strong and to be bold and to lead well. Uh, and, and we'll cover some of this in the, in the coming weeks, but uh, Timothy has uh, acquired a little bit of an unfortunate moniker, uh, a timid Timothy. He was young, he was uncertain of what it was that he was uh, doing, uh, and so these, these two letters from Paul to Timothy were designed to encourage him. Um, in the, in the uh, context of the Bible, uh, this is part of the pastoral epistles. So First and Second Timothy and Titus are all letters that are written to uh, pastors of churches, Timothy in Ephesus and then Titus on the island of Crete, about how, it, how they are to be pastors and what it looks like to lead a church. Uh, and so we're going to find a lot of parallels between uh, specifically 1 Timothy and the book of Titus. My page has got a little messed up here. so um, Because they're dealing with similar problems. And uh, they're ultimately problems that are not dissimilar to what we deal with today. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to start uh, in 1 Timothy. That's on page 991 in the uh, Black Pew Bibles. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying 
or the things about which they make confident assertions. So Timothy was left behind in Ephesus to address a, a problem. Um, and, and that problem was the departure of the Ephesian church from the truth of the gospel. Now, we don't know exactly what it was, but we can make some inferences and, and estimations. Uh, so t- in uh, Titus, Paul refers to the, the parallel issue there as being foolish controversies, foolish controversies and Jewish myths. And these controversies, as uh, as they're laid out here in 1 Timothy, seem to be tied up. They seem to be wrapped up in the Mosaic law. Uh, and from sources, from historical sources outside of the Bible, we know that uh, in the first century, Jewish tradition had begun taking uh, the, the Old Testament scriptures and expanding them, adding names and stories and ultimately altering the theology of those writings. Uh, And so regardless of what these myths and speculations and vain discussions were, Timothy was tasked with defending the church against these false doctrines. And it was natural, really, that he would encounter these in Ephesus. Because if you remember, Ephesus was a city of trade. It was a multicultural hub that existed within a pluralistic empire. And so the push of the culture around him in that city would have been to live and let live. You do your thing, I'll do mine, and everybody's going to be okay. But Timothy was charged with not allowing others to preach any different doctrine. Resist the push of the culture to allow people to choose their own truth. And also, don't waste your time on myths and speculations. Because these invented things are distracting from the stewardship the administration of that well-ordered plan, the stewardship of the gospel. Ultimately, the good news, the gospel that was entrusted to the church, doesn't depend on a detailed analysis of the genealogy of the Old Testament. It doesn't depend on some sort of fanciful, hidden, secret interpretation of something. It is simple, straightforward, well-ordered, And it's received, as we read in Ephesians 2, by grace through faith. So our faith is in the fact that God is holy and just. And that man is sinful and has rebelled against God. And in doing so, we are deserving of death and destruction. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and lived the perfect life that we couldn't, died the death that we deserved, and in doing so has saved us from the just punishment that we earned in our rebellion. And so Christ calls all mankind to repent of our sin, to repent of our treasonous rebellion against God, and to place our trust not in our own ability to be good or to do good things, but instead to place our trust, our faith, in the death that Christ died on our behalf and the resurrected life that he promises us. So this is the foundation. This is the core. This is the center of our faith. Now, some people are driven into um, particular parts of the faith. There are uh, brilliant physicists and chemists and biologists that, uh, that are driven to understand the secrets of the universe, driven to understand how it is that the world works? How is it that God has designed creation? 
There are people who are driven to to dive into the study of not how creation started, but how creation will end. Eschatology, the study of the end of the world. There are people who are driven to serve their neighbor as a demonstration of the love and justice of God. There are people who are driven to discover the best way for Christians to be in government, to be in medicine, to be in education. And all of these pursuits are good and valuable and tremendously important. But without the bedrock foundation of the God, all of these things fall into that category of vain discussion, flights of fancy and speculation. And so I think Paul's words to us today would be very similar. Hold fast to the gospel. Be a good steward of its message in a time when it is increasingly difficult to do so. And Paul's aim in these orders to Timothy we see in verse 5. And if you're, if you're inclined to underline or highlight in your Bible, verse 5 is a fantastic um, piece to underline in this particular passage. The aim of our charge is love. So the reason that Paul is telling Timothy to protect this, these doctrines is love. Remember that all of the law and the prophets, all of faith is summed up in the greatest commandment, or the greatest two commandments, rather. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus was asked, um, "What teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So the basis of all of the law and the prophets is love. And that's a thread that we've seen woven, right, already, all the way through the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. In Ephesians 4, the body is gifted and equipped to build itself up in love. In Ephesians 5, therefore be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved us. So love is the undergirding of our faith because it was in love that God designed our salvation. Love is the overflow of our faith because our faith in God should overflow out of our lives in the shape of love. But that thread runs longer than just the book of Ephesians. Right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. 1 John 3.16, By this we know love. This, by this we know love, or we know what love is. That he laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you, are to, so you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so as we love God, 
And as we love each other, we demonstrate weary, sick, broken, apathetic world that there is a God. Our love for each other and our love for them stands as a witness to that. So then how does love stand in opposition to the false doctrines that Paul is describing here? So there's one thing that, um, um, that appears, uh, it, it would appear that these myths were very exclusive. You know, they were designed to separate those, um, separate those people who knew about them from those who didn't. Uh, separate those who, uh, you know, were descended from the right genealogy from those who weren't. Separate those who were in from those who were less in. And so the aim of these myths was ostensibly to elevate one group within the church while lowering another. Yeah, you might be a Christian, but you won't be a real Christian if you don't whatever it was. You're a lower level Christian if you don't get this. But this multi-tiered, this hierarchical vision with some people at the top and other people down below is the exact opposite of what Paul had taught them previously. When we go back to Ephesians 2, um, he talks about making one man out of the disparate Jew and Gentile populations that were there. And then in verse 19, so you were no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He had taught them that they were one and that from the least to the greatest, God had designed each person's gifts and skills and abilities to fit into a specific role in the church. And that role serves an irreplaceable purpose in building up the body, in building up the church. And so we should remember that we are all gifted differently and we are all built uniquely. And so we fit together in the body in unique ways, or in a unique way. And so building each other up in love involves not making everything uniform, not making everyone the same, but in helping each other to see and to understand and to put to use our unique giftings and inclinations in service to the body, and to do so in love. So where is it that Paul says that that love comes from? The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. And I want to look at each one of these three things uh, and, and ask in relation to that, what is our natural state? And if these things are not our natural state, then where do they come from? So, so uh, start with a pure heart. What is the natural state of our hearts as human beings? Uh, in Jeremiah 17, 9, the prophet gives the answer and he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. 
And then David, in Psalm 51, which he wrote after he had sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah, he said, wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. So Jeremiah and David both understood that their hearts were deceitful and desperately sick and in need of being washed and cleansed from their sin. So if that is the natural state of our hearts, then how is it that a pure heart is created within us? David goes on in Psalm 51 to say, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So a clean heart, then, is a gift from God. It's created in us when we place our trust in Him. So God creates in us a clean heart when we are saved. It's not something that we create. It's not something that we do, but it is something that God does in us. Pay attention to that. Because it's going to show up again. So a clean heart, a good conscience. So what is our natural state? What is the natural state of our conscience? We take a look at... um, I wrote this down wrong. There we go. Uh, Romans 2. This is on page 940. Romans 2, verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls. I apologize. I did not get the right reference written down here. There we go. Romans 2, 12, not 12, 2. Okay. Uh, Romans 2, verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And this is, the, this is the critical part here. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So our conscience, the law of God is written on our hearts and our consciences accuse us when we live in contradiction to God's law, when we rebel against him. And as Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, we can harden our hearts against that. We can develop calluses that allow us to ignore that conscience. 
and to continue in the evil that we desire to do and continue in our rebellion against him when we squash the voice of that conscience that his law on our hearts raises in us. So if that is our natural state, if that is the natural state of our conscience, then how is it that a good conscience is created within us? In Hebrews, uh, so the whole book of Hebrews basically is concerned with how the Mosaic law is fulfilled in the gospel. Uh, And the Mosaic law had uh, sacrifices that were required to cleanse a person's conscience, to cleanse them from their guilt. And it was the blood of goats and of bulls and ashes sprinkled. And so in Hebrews 9.13, it says, For the blood... For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So what that's saying is if if you were forgiven, if you were cleansed from the effects of sin by blood and by ashes, then verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So in the Mosaic law, people could be ceremonially cleansed of their guilt by making sacrifices and doing particular things with the blood and the ashes of those sacrifices. But it was required that it was done over and over and over But our consciences as Christians were cleansed by the blood of Jesus once and for all. Not done by effort on our part, but done for us by the work of Christ. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So what is our natural state in relation to faith? If you've read through any of the Gospels, one of the common themes that you'll see is you'll see Jesus telling people, have faith, believe, have faith, and chastising people, O ye of little faith. So I don't think that it's a big jump to say that naturally we have a faith that is at the very least, insufficient. And I think that there's a case to be made for it being non-existent. Uh, and there's a story in, in Mark 9 about a man who brings his son to be, uh, to be healed. And he, asks, and he asks Jesus, how is it that this can be done? And Jesus says to him, all things are possible for one who believes. And the man's response is one of the most encouraging pieces of scripture that, uh, that I see. And it speaks to answer the question of how it is that our faith is created in us. The, so Jesus says to him, all things are possible for one who believes. And the man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe but I know I don't believe enough, so help me to believe more. His faith, he can't manufacture enough faith. He can't conjure up 
enough faith. He can't just sit and will himself to have more faith. And so he starts off by asking Jesus, help my unbelief, give me more faith. That's what we saw in Ephesians 2, right? Verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved by faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So faith is a gift that is given to us, not something that we manufacture. So each of these three things that are listed off here uh, as, as issuing forth into love are things that are contrary to our human nature, things that are contrary to our flesh, but are given to us as a gift by God. And love flows out of these things. Love for God and love for our neighbor. And so if love issues from these things, and these things are all given to us by God, then there's a logical implication there, right? And it, it tells us that we cannot create a love for God or love for others by our own strength of will. And so if you desire to love God more or to love others more, then these three things here that are given as gifts by God, these are the things that you should be asking for. Ask for them. Ask that God would give you a pure heart. Ask that he would give you a good conscience. Ask that he would give you a sincere faith. Because our tendency, our flesh, our human nature, is to have our heart chasing after the things of this world and the pleasures of this earth. And so we need to cry out to God and ask him to create in me a clean heart. Our flesh gives us a conscience that is burdened by sin that we have not confessed and we have not made right. And so we cry out to God, purify my conscience with the blood of Christ. Our natural human fleshly tendency is to have a faith that consists largely of faking it of going through the motions, of trying to make it look good. But we can echo the cry of that man in Mark. I believe. Help my unbelief. Give me faith, God. So in the end, these three things teach us that that love and the gospel is rooted in the end, not in our ability to follow the law or in our lineage or in our ability to understand some sort of secret knowledge. The gospel is rooted not in what we can do or who we can be, but in what we can't do and what we can't be. Because we can't do enough. We can't be enough. But we have been given the great opportunity, the great privilege, the unbelievable gift of being permitted to rely on the one person who could be enough. 
Jesus Christ. The gospel drives us to rely on God for all things. But first, we must rely on him for these three things. And our reliance on him should drive us to an unparalleled, unrivaled, and absolutely inexplicable love for each other. Because when we each fall, when we fail, when we are rude and arrogant and hateful and impatient and dishonest and in faith and unfaithful, and if you live with each other in the way that the Bible describes the church living together, you will see this in each other's lives. You will see this in my life. But the outflow of this is that we should each bear with the other. Because as we see each other's sin, and as we love our neighbor as Christ loved them, in spite of the sin, we demonstrate that we know that they could never be enough, just as we could never be enough. And the same grace that covers me covers them as well. Let's pray. Father, the aim of this charge that you have given us in this passage of Scripture is love. But Father, we cannot love. We can't manufacture it. We can't will it into existence, Father. But it comes by your gift. It comes by your decree, by your work in our lives. Father, I ask that you would give us the desire for these things that you would give us a desire for a pure heart, a desire for a good conscience, and a desire for a sincere faith. And where we find ourselves lacking these things, I ask that you would drive us to call out to you and ask for them. Ask for them, not that we may be glorified, but that you may be glorified. That we may love. That we may love you and love our neighbor. And in doing so, point people to the one true source, the one true example of love in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.